0: Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. This is an image of Proxy Falls. This is a really cool spot in Oregon, up the McKenzie River Highway. If you go up the Highway 126 outside of Eugene, and um, you go up there for a while, then you take this cutoff, and it's this old highway that used to go up over this pass in the Cascades. really cool area, and that passes through a lot of roads, uh, it really gives you a ton of access to some amazing public land that's out there in the Three Sisters Wilderness Area and, uh, and including this area, Proxy Falls, which is really cool. It's one of the, the very most photographed waterfalls it seems like uh, in this section of the Mackenzie River. That's a really beautiful spot, and uh, it's just really awesome how the water kind of cascades down. It's really full of moss and you know, of growth and greenery in almost every area so i really liked uh, the opportunity to get out there and get some photographs of it this one was shot on a digital camera but i really try to push those colors and kind of bring out some of the tones that i that i really like seeing in some of the akatar film that i had been working with uh i think during that summer of 2014 when i took this photograph pretty cool stuff but yeah i really remember having a great time doing some of the the stuff at proxy falls and i really recommend recommend that as a place to go in oregon but thanks a lot for checking out this video From BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can see more. Go to my Instagram channel at BillyNewman. Thanks a lot. You can see more of my work at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film on the desert on surrealism on camping some cool stuff over there i think uh, like october well september october and and november are really like uh maybe one of my favorite outdoors seasons and it's probably kind of set up that way for a lot of people that have like a tradition of going out on hunting trips through October or, you know, like going out on opening day or something like that. In Oregon, I think it's October 1st, maybe in other States it's in a, a part of September. So I think it's kind of, kind of been tuned and tied to the, uh, the hunting season in, uh, like the American cultural lore for probably a hundred years or 80 years or so, uh, as that's kind of, kind of been, uh, like part of the American mythologies, but, it's uh, cool, though. I like uh, going out in the fall. It's really one of the best times to go camping. It's uh, when you get to kind of take uh, or make use of all the equipment and stuff that you've sort of procured over time. And uh, and that's when you kind of also get to use some of the, the skills and stuff you've been trying to scout out or train on to kind of see how they work and the application of them. You know, in the summertime when it's like really nice out, it's cool to go out and camp. And I've always had a really great time doing that. But, uh, like, the hot weather camping, I don't know. It's... Um, it's, it demands a little less, I guess it's kind of obvious, but the environment is sort of uh something that you don't have to contend with as much and uh, in the deep winter, the environment's probably too much to contend with, so there's a cool kind of pocket that I like uh <laughs> as like an ideal uh but uh, a cool kind of weather pocket or environmental pocket between i guess like parts of the fall until. November when it kind of gets too deep into it, and then parts of the spring as we're coming up into the summertime, where you can kind of um, you can kind of feel like you're getting to do a little bit more. Fires still kind of a no, right? <laughs> but uh, I'll wait for the winter or springtime to do that. But at least like in late fall, like in November, or in these uh, like northern Oregon areas, after you start getting like a layer of snow or a significant amount of rain, and the fire, uh, the emergency level drops back down to green. Uh, there 's a lot of open burning that you can do on campsites that you set up at public land and stuff, so I think that 's always kind of a, a fun part of like the the winter like late fall camping stuff is when you get to set up like a bigger fire, gather some wood, gather some big logs to be uh kind of like your fuel for the evening it 's kind of fun and it 's sort of like that more i don 't know primal kind of connective to so like the, the real kind of root camping stuff. But uh, as it goes for a lot of the year, uh, like in the summertime, like hot weather stuff, you're kind of like uh, doing it around water or, you know, that's how like we would, we would do stuff. You know, we do rafting or something. Uh, so it's kind of like enjoying the day. You don't have to layer up. You don't have to wear like uh, a dry suit or, you know, a bunch of different, I don't know, warming layers that you have to kind of be conscious of. So I think that's kind of where you start getting into more of that now. I think like now, like river trips and stuff, you know, they sort of shift from like the the recreational summer tourism, whitewater stuff that you get between, I guess, like May and Labor Day. And now as you get kind of further into September and now deep into October, uh, you have people, I guess, coming down just kind of strictly for some of the fishing season stuff. So you get like uh, instead of rafts, you'll have a bunch of drift boats come down, like fishing boats and stuff, guided tours and stuff for some of the, the lower river stuff or just people out on there. They're kind of set up and prepped for fishing trips, but it's cool. Yeah, a lot, of, um, a lot of enthusiasm around some of the fishing stuff during this time of year. In fact, really, I want to get out and do some fishing stuff. I got my fishing license earlier this year, and I've gone a couple times this fall, but I need to really, I guess, commit a little more and kind of set it up the right way. I think I'm always kind of doing a couple too many things, you know, like I'm trying to like set a camera up to record footage and then throw some casts and let the line set. And then you wait for an hour or so, but maybe if it's a non-optimal time or you're kind of up to something else and you move on and stuff. So I haven't really caught a lot of stuff that was keeper worthy. I picked up a couple of things out of the lake and it was like a uh, shoot, little tiny guy or a little like tiny sunfish or rafe. What is it? Yeah, I think it's a little sunfish like these, uh, like kind of like a bluegill. Not a lot, you know, <laughs> Shoot, a little better than a minnow. Uh, but uh, yeah, I want to try and get into doing some more uh, fall fishing stuff through now until like the end of the year. And I think there's a couple couple good seasons that kind of come on through uh, November. But I think it'd be cool. I want to try and uh, try and jump into that a little faster. I think there's also some kind of controlled like stocked ponds that are nearby where I'm at. I think they stock them with trout through the winter. And I'm interested in trying out a couple of those places. They seem like they're you know, or just just to kind of the numbers that they talk about. It's like, oh man, that's that's kinda of cool for that kind of a thing, for a stock fishing kind of thing. But uh I've been trying to get a little bit more into like what I can harvest, what I can prospect, uh, what I can kind of kind of gather from uh natural resource areas that are around me. And I think it's been kinda of fun to do as uh I guess sort of a hobby. Uh, so along with like the photo stuff that I'm trying to do while I'm out, I've been trying to, like I was saying, like get a fishing license so I can do some fishing stuff on the side or, uh, pick up a little bit of information about what kind of rock counting I can do in that sort of area or, uh, what kind of like foraging stuff I can do or what kind of, uh, like wood gathering opportunities I have. So I've been trying to do some of that stuff a little bit more often, like, uh, and I don't know, email me if there's some other cool stuff I can do, but, uh, but yeah, it's been cool. I've been trying to like now in the fall, go out and do some chanterelle picking uh, so if I can find some spots that are good for it, it's like a lot of stuff like kind of near the coast or coastal range in Oregon, probably, uh, I don't know what, like Florence to Astoria, probably a lot into Washington too that I just have no clue about. But uh, that I think like those foot, foothills of the, the mountains there kind of get the moisture and they have the right type of uh, like temperature range. Uh, for them to grow during this time of year. It's interesting, though, how those those grow patterns go. I don't really understand. I really don't understand, like, mushrooms and how those mushroom rings work or how, the, like, their their populations work. But, uh, but yeah, it's really interesting how they, they grow in just, like, certain patches. Like, where they are, there'll be more of those. But where they're not, there won't be. It's kind of, it's, I don't know, it's just weird going around and finding them. But if you find one, you'll find, like, more around in that area if it's been, like, a good climate for it. For a while, though, a lot of October still has been really just a little, we've gotten a little rain here and there and I'm glad there's some like systems moving through, but it's really kind of been dry enough still that, uh, that some of the forest floor isn't quite moist enough yet to really start bringing on the, the fungus growth that, uh, that we'd need to get like a good, a good crop of uh, edible mushrooms out of it. So, uh, we'll kind of see how it goes, and I guess there's going to be a window of it. Sometimes like the, the years are better for it or worse for it, and uh, I don't know, we'll kind of see how it, how it goes for the rest of the year. Sometimes like as soon as you snap into November, you get a week or two weeks or three weeks into November, and those will really be pretty, pretty good weeks, uh, but as soon as you get a few days with sort of a, a where you get like a strong frost or freeze overnight. That really messes with the growth of those mushrooms, and if you get them consecutively for like three days, that, that'll really knock out anything. For one of them, you know, the mushrooms they grow so fast. So if you have a if you have a freeze, a hard freeze on Monday, but then it warms up Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday by Thursday, you'll you'll be able to get like a you wouldn't even notice. You know, you'll be able to get a good crop of uh, of new newly grown mushrooms out of out of you know that same same area. So it just kind of depends on like how it goes. But as soon as you start getting like a set of hard freezes. Man, it just seems like I've gone out and seen like a bunch of them that had been growing, and then now they're just uh, ugh, like mushy, and you know they just up, they got a deep freeze, they they frosted over, and now it's like a dead plant, and it's just kind of turned to a mush. And they, man, those mushrooms turn to a mush real fast. It's really weird. I was looking at a ring that's growing in our yard. It's just toadstools, you know, like out by uh, like the, the I don't know, just out by like a, a apple tree. It's cool that they come on, but they come on in like, uh, I think kind of late September is when they start to pop up this ring out there. And then there, there's some other areas that I've noticed them around town too. It seems like it's just like a certain time of year and boom, boom here's all these, as soon as the conditions get met right. Uh, but yeah, right where those are, they come up and then they last about, I don't know, maybe five days, a week or so. Maybe it's been a week and a half now, and but they, they really start to decay and they start to like kind of, kind of fall over, fall apart. And it's interesting too to see how the grass responds, the grass and the lawn around it. Looks like it's been fertilized heavily, but yeah, it just, boom, pops up, bright, dark green grass, about three inches, or maybe three, I don't know, maybe twice as tall as the the rest of the grass around it, so yeah, it seems like those little toadstool mushrooms fed the lawn pretty well, but yeah, I think there's like another growth of them coming on now, which is kind of interesting how they they come on in a couple phases, but there's some, some fresh ones coming up in the, the ring area around it, and then those will, I don't know, those will kind of last for a couple of days, and then... Wilt out over again too. But it's cool. Um uh, checking out some mushrooms and stuff around here. But yeah, I've been trying to go out and sort of see what I can uh forge around for, which has been kinda of fun. I'm not really sure what other stuff there is. I hear there's what is it? Elderberry? I hear about that being looked for. And I remember now this is another one. I remember seeing a a person it was a strange circumstance. I was driving on a on a forest road out in the mountains here. Pretty deep in the mountains. And didn't see any cars around, Didn't or didn't pass a car in the drive up. You know, you see a car, then you're like, oh, well, there's probably a person around with that car. And then after we passed this, like, we didn't see a car either. But we, we were driving, and then there was, a like, a shorter man with a hat. And he had two big racks of these, like, branches. Maybe about as long as, like, your elbow to your fingertip or so. But these long, like, thin branches with these big, broad green leaves on it. And it would be, I don't know, maybe 24 inches or so. And they were all on these stacks. And then there would be like a kind of a plywood thing. Or I don't know what it was. Maybe newspaper or something. Paper. But then it was like more stacked on top of that. And then another layer and more stacked on top of that. But yeah, I just had this big bundle of these sticks with these big broad green leaves on it. And he was standing there on the edge of the road that we were at. And we drove by. And then we drove down the rest of this road, and yeah, the, we never saw it, a car or anything that he was staying in, but this guy was out here collecting these green sticks and leaves, uh, so I'm not sure what that is, it looked like elderberry, I'd never really identified it exactly, I know some of that grows up here, and I know people try and forage for it, but I'm not really sure what for, or how it works, but now that I know they do it, I want to do it too, sort of how the Chanterelle thing came out, I think like a lot of people have never really, really even heard of that. Uh, or a lot of like the mushroom picking stuff like morels. Morels got really popular stuff. But uh, I think it's like kind of because, because it, it kind of people sort of found out that you can go look for it and people are going look, looking for it or that it's like really expensive. You think like, wow, if it's 15 bucks to look for it or 15 bucks to buy a pound of mushrooms, the chanterelle mushrooms in the store. Well, if it's that expensive, it must be good. And if it's that good, then I must want to go look for it sort of what it seems like a little bit, but it's cool going out, looking for some mushrooms and stuff outside. I hear people talking about like, uh, like picking morels and I guess those grow, I guess those must grow in a different environment, like a different terrain or, or whatever it is. I hear about them more like toward like in the East or like the Midwest. So I'm not really sure, but I know like there's different relationships of like the, the tree to the type of soil and the type of like environment that it's in, uh, all kind of plays a part into like what mushroom, is going to grow is it a micro relationship i might have talked about it last time but i don't really understand how that works but i don't so i don't understand what allows there to be like a morel versus a good spot for a chanterelle to grow or a portobello or what is what are those regular white ones just those criminy just regular ones that we eat and stuff so i'm not really sure what, what kind of like allows you to, to farm some but not farm others i know that's a big one that like you can't effectively farm morel mushrooms i guess you can you can harvest them in an area that is set up as an optimal environment that's about as good as as they've had it like they've ha- they found like where they're growing and the time of year that they grow well and they try and optimize for that so that they can go through and harvest more of it out of it, but they haven't been able to take i suppose like an area that that didn't have the correct environment for it and then sort of artificially grow more then the landscape would kind of bear naturally. I don't think they figured that out, and I don't really understand that, like how there's some that you can, uh or, you, know, you kind of figure out a little bit, but like it's just like the complications between the relationships for some of them get so complex that it's like difficult to re- recreate. I guess there are biologists that work on that of like how to get or what is it a? Uh, it's not a biologist. It's a type of biologist that studies mushrooms, right? A mycologist. Mycology. I think it's mycology and I'm mycologist for study of mushrooms. But I also think there's like agriculture interests. I think there's like a food industry interest in trying to generate mushrooms of different varieties so that they're like a, a commercially available product. So I think they're trying to like work those things out. So sometimes it's mycologists at that level trying to study it and figure that out. But I think sometimes it's like I don't know, whole different companies and groups and teams of people trying to sort of sort of uh, figure out ways to sort out those problems with uh with growing and harvesting some mushrooms and stuff. You know, I was hearing about this other thing too, where if you get a bunch of mushrooms and you're not quite sure what they are, there's a lot, there's I guess a few different ways. Or there's there's a couple problems where it's difficult to identify certain types of mushrooms. There's some mushrooms that have... Well, I'm not really sure how it goes. I really don't know anything about it. So I guess I should leave with that. There's a lot of them that are poisonous. I guess it's sort of like the the, uh, the cautionary point of it. Like people talk about mushroom picking a lot. But really there's a lot of mushrooms that are that are pretty dangerous or that are just going to likely make you sick. So if you don't really have much expertise in it, uh, it's kind of kind of difficult to go out and do that easily, you know, because you're just going to gather some stuff that may look like it or may look almost exactly like it, but there's sort of some nuance to detail that makes it a different mushrooms or di- a different mushroom species that actually is one that's, you know, not good for you or at least not edible. There's a lot of, there's I guess, a difference between like the, the neurotoxic mushrooms that uh, will, I think, kill you. Or or get you really sick, uh and like sick uh in like a, a neurotoxin way. But then I think there's like a, a number of them that are just inedible in a way where they'll they'll I guess one from a range make you very sick to eat, or they'll make you just kind of like mildly n- unhappy with what you ate. But generally like I'd prefer not to eat a lot of that stuff. Or like if it if it seems like it's a a bad <laughs> or like an unknown, I'd rather like not eat. Uh, just sort of an unknown mushroom. A lot of them, I guess, you can eat. Or there's a number of them that are like maybe not preferred, but are edible. But sort of may make you get an upset stomach. I was kind of confused about that. Of like, well, why would you eat it? I was like, oh, you can eat it. It'll make you sick, but yeah, you can eat it. And it's like, well, oh, I but mean, isn't that what? Why? Why I wouldn't eat it? Cause, I mean, it's it's a thing I'm eating that makes me sick, right? Like, I can eat rotten milk too, right? It just makes you sick. Like, so I don't want it. I don't know, but. Uh, I've heard of that as an explanation for some stuff. Also, I don't know. You, you hear weird explanations for eating natural things sometimes. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I was hearing about this thing where you can, you can put, you can put a, you can put a bunch of mushrooms that you've got down on like a screen and then put like paper on the backside of it. And then if you cover them and let them sit for a while, the, after they're cut, they'll end up throwing their spores. And I guess with certain mushrooms, you can visually like see the spore pattern that's dropped onto the sheet that you put on that screen. And I guess that's how they're able to identify some similar shaped mushrooms. Like if this mushroom looks this way and this other mushroom of a different species looks almost exactly the same way, a way that you can identify how they are different is by setting them on the screen and then getting a throw of their spores and then identifying the spore. Like, you know, one spore pattern will be like bluish or purplish or I don't know, whatever. And the other spatter or the other spore pattern will be like a yellow color or something. So you're like, oh, well, like this one like threw this kind of spore and this one didn't. So like now we can identify this is this, this specific mushroom. I thought that was weird though, like how how to kind of figure that out. But uh, fortunately, like that's what's cool about chanterelles is that they're really one of the easiest ones to identify the golden chanterelles. There's one that like almost looks like it. That's a good thing to like pull up a YouTube video to identify visually how to how to distinctly tell those difference the differences apart between them. It's sort of the way that the the gills are fluted up the vein of the stem, and then as it kind of comes up to the mushroom top, how does that how does that transition happen with chanterelles? It's the 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 gills are really shallow and they start real low on it, and then kind of sweep up the fluting of the stem up to the mushroom top, and uh, and then with these imposter ones. I guess there's kind of like a hard angled joint there where you see the gill lines start and then the gills kinda come out from there with like a deeper uh a deeper sort of cut to the to the gill ridge with sort of some finer material, but those aren't good to eat. And I think those are a little bit more of a white color. There's white chanterelles too. I'm not really sure how that goes. The difference between like the white chanterelles or the golden chanterelles. I thought it was like sun exposure, like if they were kind of bleached out from being sort of hidden under moss or something, they always seemed to be like a a lighter kind of, well, yeah, just like a real light color. But then I thought the ones that were out in the sunshine had to sort of defend against that and like uh, got like more of a color to them. But I guess they're kind of like a different set of mushroom types. Sort of what I understand, but I've collected both of them in sort of the same areas. And if you find one, then it seems like you find uh, both of them. So I'm not sure how that goes, but I've uh, appreciated kind of collecting them. And uh, it's uh, cool to, to dry them. That's what I've been trying to do is it's hard to eat through all those mushrooms fresh as they are. Uh, when you're harvesting them, I'm harvesting those mushrooms all at one time. And so what I'm trying to do this year, as opposed to what I've done in past years, where I just try and make up a dish with all of the mushrooms all that first time while they're fresh, it's fun to kind of go through uh, the stuff you harvested and then like make a, big pasta thing and like put a bunch of mushrooms in it but this time it's just the ones that you harvested after you clean them so that's really cool and it's fun to uh, put stuff like that together but what i'm hoping to do is kind of gather up enough stuff from going out a little bit more frequently into a few different areas and then uh, gathering up the stuff that i've got drying it out and then uh, having like dried mushrooms that are bagged and stored so that i can have them kind of through the rest of the year Um, i've also heard about like freezing mushrooms have you guys heard of that I know, like, or like, you know, like when you thaw it out, like it's not really the same material anymore at all. So it's like you have to kind of put it into a, a sauce or something like that. So I was thinking, like, the cell damage that you get after freezing, it would just be like way too much to really use again. So I think what I'm going for is to like do a uh, to dehydrate the mushrooms, so I can like cut them, or even maybe leave them intact, but like uh, have those mushrooms dehydrated. Which is, there's a lot of water. If you like, um, especially like after it's been like really wet, like they just soak up that water in the forest floor and then it's all within that, that cell mass of the chanterelle. But when you put like, take a cut of a chanterelle, that's like a kind of a thicker, hardier one. You take a cut of it and you put it on a frying pan that's hot and you watch like the amount of water that it releases. But it's like, wow, that is just almost all rainwater that had come down and filled the cell walls. And now it's being released as you start to cook it. But you think, man, that's a lot. No way. So, I don't know. It's kind of cool. It's cool uh, going through October, doing some of this stuff. I've also been trying to go out and do some rock counting stuff. It's cool. I've just kind of been jetting over. I mean, this is like kind of the old and easy classic one, but I've been jetting over to the coast. Kind of keep an eye on the high tide and low tide times of the day and of the month. But it's uh, cool to jet out there and uh, check out what rocks are sort of washed up on the surface and the sand on the beaches Uh, In times of low tide, so it's kind of cool going out there, cruising the rock line and kind of just picking up some nice polished stones on the beach, which I've been kind of trying to do. Some jade stuff is kind of cool. You find like the the little green ones Find some sand dollars and stuff, but you find like some cool rocks out there. I've been kind of having a good time trying to pull up some of those stones. A couple times we've got agate. A couple times it's like quartz. I think it's like a quartz rock. And then a lot of the time it's, I don't know, just some of the kind of cool, normal, what is it, basalt, normal rock stuff. or it's got a line in it or something. That's kind of cool when you find one with like a, a textured feature of it, you know, where it's, uh, there's some seam or something in there. I always like that kind of stuff too, where it's uh, it's kind of a combination and stuff. But been going out to the beach and uh, trying to find some rocks and stuff through October and trying to kind of get out and do some more active stuff. I'll get into some of the camping trip stuff that I've done. Here in a little bit, but yeah, trying to go out to Eastern Oregon and check out some stuff and uh, sort of poke around. And You can check out more information at BillyNewmanPhoto.com. You can go to BillyNewmanPhoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, You're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. I'm looking into like hard drives right now. I'm trying to find something, but I don't know if I really need... Uh, the collaborative accessibility that is provided by by cloud storage so much I, I think i need like fast hard drives fast data storage and stuff so i can i can kind of move things around that seems to be more useful for me than uh, than the big cloud i'm looking at a eight terabyte and 10 terabyte seagate hard drive right now a couple other brands i was looking at like the, the g drives and those cooler like aluminum metal cases I was looking at other lacy drives about lacy stuff in the past and but I'm looking for a bigger desktop drive. I have, I have a couple uh, like smaller portable drives that are great with the laptop when you're when you're moving around and that's worked really functionally the last couple of years but I am looking for something that really probably what I actually want is a NAS or you know, some network attached uh, storage device. Uh, I've been interested in those for a long time. They're kind of expensive to get into. It's you know almost like buying a desktop computer when you loaded up with big hard drives and you have to buy an enclosure and it's a big project just all as that as it is uh, so really it, picking up eight terabytes or ten terabytes for uh, for 200 bucks seems like like it would solve my problem for the time being but that's what i thought five years ago when i bought a four terabyte hard drive and i thought that would solve my problems and now i have four filled up four terabyte hard drives one two those are four. that was a two those are both ones so they're all full that's for sure uh so uh, yeah i need a i need a bigger a bigger amount of space to kind of do the data management stuff that i have in the background the tough thing is is like so you have four terabytes wow that sounds like a lot way more than i would have ever thought in the past oh man think about 20 years from now the the, the data we're going to be talking about we're talking about ar files or you know photogrammetry projects or something it's going to be insane data Four terabytes, I got to back that up somewhere, right? So I need a second four terabyte hard drive to have all that duplicated over to. So now I have two full four terabyte hard drives, uh, it, it, which is kind of the problem that yeah, I, don't know, I seem to run into. I'm going to get this eight terabyte hard drive, and then I'm going to need a, a second one to back it up to. So the idea is that it's really just going to be this one big tank drive that's going to be the archive area for all this stuff to go and uh, get backed up to. And then we're going to have the smaller, you know, four terabyte hard drives that are maybe a little faster. Mm, I've been doing black magic speed tests on them, though, and they are not that fast. They're like 100 megabits a second. I'll get in that a second. But uh, yeah, trying to get uh, the four terabyte hard drives I have right now to be more active, like for video projects or for the photo libraries or something like that. Maybe I can break it out. And have that run a little bit more stably on some of those. But the interesting thing, the thing I was going to mention is that these drives are USB 3, right? Oh, wow, USB 3, that's fast. Hey, maybe soon they're going to be Thunderbolt 3 or the USB 3.1 USB-C connector. That'll be great. That'll be what? What is that, 10 or 20 gigabytes a second? Incredible speed. Wow, that'll be awesome. Or USB 3, what, that's 5 gigabits a second? Gigabytes a second? Hmm, slipping. No. Mm -mm. These slow hard drives are what the the weakest link in the chain is. So you're sort of throttled back to the speed that the drive can write to. So these 7,200 RPM drives, these spinning disk drives, which used to be kind of -of state-of-the-art video drives 10 years ago, are now kind of considered really slow. They are really slow. Their data write speeds are somewhere around 100 megabytes a second, which is B- below half of what was advertised for the, the even USB 2 speeds of 250 megabits a second, megabytes a second. Okay, so what we're running 100 megabytes a second on a USB 3 4 terabyte hard drive. It's good. It's cool. It's I think better than the USB 2 connection. Act you know does so it's faster than a USB 2 cable. Happy to have USB 3, but wow, that is like not the same kind of performance at all. So that's really where you're going to see the performance increase when you go to an SSD hard drive. Uh, So I was was trying to consider that about you know any like future stuff. I was thinking about like uh, getting like a pro desktop computer and trying to build out some stuff like I was saying, a network storage device or. I don't know, other stuff that I could use, but I was thinking about, oh, okay, so for performance with, like, a higher-end computer, you're really going to get slower speeds with that, but you would get really fast speeds if you had an SSD or if you had, you know, the right type of enclosure that was built to to work with it really quickly, so that's kind of been crossing my mind, too, for uh, future-proofing. Uh, what I'm up to for the uh, the 2020s as uh, we're getting into it. I really think, though, you know, you know, most logically, the answer was probably get the reasonably priced 8-terabyte drive now, wait some years into the future, and pick up uh, a, I don't know, some multi-terabyte solid-state drive of the future that uh, can transmit things at faster speeds. I'm sure we'll get there sooner than later. Well, thanks a lot for listening to uh, me kind of ramble about computers that I have installed onto my laptop. That's pretty interesting, right? But all of that is in service of the greater goal of trying to get some photo stuff put together, which uh, has been going pretty well. I've been going through a bunch of images in the catalog and i'm trying to get together i think i've been trying to talk about it in in so many ways a few times but i'm trying to get together a couple uh, sets of portfolios sort of structured into like let's say easily landscape commercial shoots portrait shoots wedding shoots something like that and so there's kind of a collection of each so i can have so if people are to look at those photos they will sort of see oh yeah there's these and there's this and then there's that so that's kind of the uh, the plan, which is close to coming together. Pretty fun. And other than that, I'm getting into video stuff. I've been editing a lot more in Final Cut. I've got the big monitor up. I've got the Wacom tablet out. I'm trying to go through and uh, kind of use, get used to using the pen. It's probably easier to do that in Photoshop or Illustrator or something like that to get used to the pen. But in Final Cut's a cool tool also. You get to kind of you know flow the pen back and forth. As using a tablet, it's a faster way of working than with a mouse in some ways, so or it's sometimes a little more accurate, but it really is a bit of a learning curve in some ways. So, I'm trying to tighten it up, it's coming together. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on billynewmanphoto.com. A few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other other outbound sources some some links to books some links to some podcasts links to some blog posts all pretty cool but yeah check it out at com. thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast talk to you next time